You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Uh, welcome everyone to Krika's uh, Thursday virtual lecture series. My name is Ted Gerber. I'm the director of Krika, and um, it's a pleasure to have you all uh, join us for our regular Thursday afternoon session. Uh, just a few program notes before I introduce my colleague who will introduce today's speaker. Uh, first of all, uh, next week we don't have a regular Krika lecture. Uh, on October 15th, that is. Uh, however, there's plenty of events going on. Uh, so if you go to the Krika events calendar, which is on the Krika website, which is just um, uh, easy, to, easy to find, it's uh, krika.wis.eu. And under events, you'll see uh, there are actually four Krika-related events next week, uh, one of which I'd like to call particular attention to, and that is the virtual launch of Professor Francine Hirsch's new book, Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, which will be on Monday at 7 p.m. Central Time, hosted by Room of One's own bookstore, as well as several campus sponsors. So once again, please go to krika.wisc.edu to see other events. There's two other uh, lecture, virtual lectures on Eastern Europe, and there's also a regular uh, Friday session on uh, new perspectives on race in our field. Uh, so the next actual Krika lecture will be two weeks from today on October 22nd, and the theme is, uh, or the, the title is uh, Perestroika's Dark Side, Nationalism, Racism, and Crisis on Moscow Streets at the End of the Soviet Union. And that lecture is going to be by Jeff Sahadeu, who is a professor at Carleton University. So one final note uh, pertaining to logistics, uh, please make sure to mute your mics and your video for the, the duration of the lecture. And please hold questions into the end of the lecture after the speaker is finished. Uh, once we open the floor for questions and discussions, we'd ask you to use the raise hand uh, button under the participants key uh, to indicate you have a question. And then when you are addressing your question or comment, please do remember to turn on your mic, of course, but also your camera. Uh, okay, so without further ado, it's my pleasure to turn the floor over to my colleague, Catherine Ciancia. Uh, Associate Professor of uh, History here at uh, UW, and she will introduce today's speaker. Okay. Thank you uh, very much, Ted. Um, so good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this uh, Krika lecture. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker, Theodora Dragostinova. Um, and I'm sure it's become kind of a cliche at these things to um, lament the fact that we're not meeting in person. I was really looking forward to um, Theodora coming to see us in the spring and to showing her around Madison. And I, I hope that will still take place at some point in the future. But in the meantime, thank you, Theodora, for agreeing to um, participate in this virtual format and also to Jennifer and Veronica for their organizational work in setting this up. So just a few, few words about our speaker. Um, so Professor Dragostinova is Associate Professor of History at Ohio State University, and she teaches and researches on some of the really big issues of European history, migration, nationalism, Cold War politics, um, culture, and issues as well about globalization. 
Her first book, uh, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2011, was entitled Between Two Motherlands, Nationality and Emigration Among the Greeks in Bulgaria, 1900 to 1949. Um, and it was shortlisted for a number of prizes, including the Joseph Rothschild Prize in Nationalism and Ethnic Studies and the Edmund Keeley Book Prize from the Modern Greek Studies Association. And she's also co-edited an important volume entitled Beyond Mosque, Church and State, Alternative Narratives of the Nation in the Balkans, which came out in 2015, uh, 2016. Sorry. So I won't list off all of her articles. You can find them in the best journals um, in our field, Slavic Review, Contemporary European History, Journal of Contemporary History, East European Politics and Societies, the Journal of Genocide Research and Nationalities Papers. Uh, today she'll be presenting on part of the research for this new book, which is forthcoming in May 2021, and I really hope the world looks very different by the time this book comes out, we all have our fingers crossed. Um, and, you know, she, obviously she'll be presenting the, the fruits of this research today, but I just want to emphasize um, as an East European historian, how important this book is going to be for, for the field. Um, this is an area, this, this idea about small states in Eastern Europe and the effect that they had on what was then called the third world. Um, it, it has really been overlooked in the historiography, and it's a really, um, it's a really important um, area to look at, I think, considering this, this so-called, what was called the second world, and um, how it influenced uh, global politics in what was then called the third world. Um, so I'm just delighted that this book is coming out, and I know it's going to be a must-read for all of us um, teaching and researching in the field of, of modern East European history. Um, her talk today is entitled, A Small State on the Global Scene, Bulgaria's Developing World in the 1970s. So at this point, we would all clap and, and welcome Professor Dragostina over to Madison. Um, and I know that everybody is, is clapping at home. Um, I certainly am delighted that, that you're here with us. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited about the lecture. So I'll turn it over to you. Um, welcome and thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Catherine. Uh, that was such a wonderful introduction. And now you're really taking me to task to deliver on, um, you know, how you presented my project. I really am very excited to be here because as uh, Catherine and um, Ted also mentioned, we had this talk planned for April and I'm very grateful to Jennifer uh, Tischler that she, um, you know, worked so diligently to make it happen uh, today virtually which also has some advantages. So I'm very happy to, to be seeing so many uh, people here um, that are sort of like fellow travelers in this path of unearthing the place of the second world in the third. So I will start sharing uh, my PowerPoint here. I will plan to talk about 45 minutes and then I will be very happy uh, to uh, take um, questions. Um, and uh, I think that should work okay. So um, as Catherine mentioned, this presentation is part of a, a book project that um, I'm finishing. I'm literally waiting for the proof to come to my desk, hopefully in a few weeks, um, which is called The Cold War from the Margins, A Small State on the Global Cultural Scene. And uh, what I'm presenting today is um, about a quarter of the contents of the book. So I think what I want to do before I go to the gist of the presentation is just give you a little bit of context so that um, you know what uh, exactly the big issues are that are connected to this topic. And of course, learning, uh, I mean, working on a small state, I have um, learned that you can never provide too much context. So. 
this case study is the Bulgarian International Cultural Outreach to a variety of uh, countries in the context of the global 1970s. During this time period, in the period of the, uh, between uh, 1977 and 1982, intellectuals and officials closely connected to the Bulgarian Communist Party launched an ambitious program of international cultural events. Um, they staged what, according to uh, official data, um, is counted as over 38,000 events in various places throughout the world. And you can see here this map produced in 1982, which shows the extent of this cultural extravaganza. There are events in the socialist bloc, in the Balkan states, in the developed capitalist states. But what I'm going to be talking about is about the events in the global south, which um, if you add them up, they are actually upwards of 22,000 events with whopping 15,000 events organized in Asian countries. These events were associated with the lavish celebrations in 1981 of a national anniversary. 1300 years since the establishment of the medieval Bulgarian state in 681. And the occasion of this anniversary, Bulgarian officials uh, organized a multitude of cultural events, both within the country. And here you can see some of the signature events associated with the country, which included mass events, but also the building of a huge convention center in downtown Sofia and a monument which has been demolished, uh, but also a massive publication uh, program and a variety of events for domestic consumption. But the gist of my book actually looks at the international aspect of this cultural extravaganza because also 13 years of Bulgaria as this um, um, jubilee, this anniversary was often referred to, was also a global cultural, cultural affair with museum uh, exhibitions organized throughout the, some of the most famous museums worldwide. You can see here actually Bulgarian exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. Uh, concerts uh, of Bulgarian performers in the most important uh, venues throughout the world, but also again the publication of uh, various uh, works, uh, exhibitions, and, and all sorts of events, meetings with sympathetic audiences. Now, the best Bulgarian cultural resources uh, were mobilized to showcase the cultural heritage of a small country that advertised itself twofold is the proud heir of rich historical traditions and is one of the oldest European states, sort of like looking to the past, but also as the inevitable builder of a communist utopia looking to the future. And you can see these images, these posters from the anniversary that are clearly showing you this connection between the past and the future, between the, pre the, the, the heritage of past times and the utopia that is going to come with the building of communism. Now, the motivations of a small state to invest um, so extravagantly in culture during a period of global economic instability and political volatility in the second half of the 17th century is intriguing. And in the larger project that um, um, looks at uh, this question, I engage the question at various levels, at the domestic level. So I look at what culture meant for Bulgaria during late socialism. I look at the European level at the engagement uh, with the Balkan neighbors uh, in um, the Balkans and also with the, uh, the expanding East-West contacts during the detente. And then I look at the global level. 
um, sort of like where these this contacts fit in the context of the global Cold War. And this is the piece that I'm going to uh, present today. So in this talk, what I'm going to try to accomplish is several things. I will quickly explain the general uh, logic of the events that took place. I will then focus on encounters with the developing world, asking what were the Bulgarians doing, particularly in India, uh, Mexico and Nigeria. And then I would conclude by engaging some larger uh, thoughts about the place of the second world in the, in the third. So why culture in Bulgaria in the 1970s? The Bulgarian International Cultural Program followed the templated Soviet cultural exchange, which served important ideological reasons ever since Nikita Khrushchev adopted internationalism as an aspect of uh, Soviet foreign policy after 1956. For Bulgarian officials too, culture was part and parcel of state policy because it was understood to encapsulate ideas of state rights and welfare that the socialist bloc wished to disseminate throughout the world. Exporting culture was a part of the battle for hearts and minds. Extensive state support for culture demonstrated the level of commitment of a political system that worked for the people and by the people and was superior to the capitalist model. And since 1956, we see that Eastern European states uh, as a whole, so extensive transborder contacts, including the expansion of travel opportunities and tourism, the experimentation with Western cultural ideas, the adoption of Western consumer practices. And by the 1970s, the time that I'm discussing here in the context of detente, um, cross-block contacts, including international cultural contacts, had become a routine aspect of East-West cooperation during, in the context of the global Cold, uh, of the Cold War. Yet, a unique set of factors explains the intensity of the Bulgarian international cultural flight, flight, flirtation specific, specifically. The 1960s, and especially the 1970s, saw a revival of cultural nationalism in the country which manifested itself with a domestic campaign of patriotic education, which was linked to the entry of nation, national and nationalistic themes in the interpretation and teaching of history, the building of monuments, um, the making of various movies, and also historical, the writing of historic, publication of historical novels and so forth. And this patriotic or nationalistic turn elevated the role of the cultural intelligentsia within Bulgaria and created excitement among the population at large. And the climax of this campaign, I argue, were the celebrations in 1981 of the 1300th anniversary of the establishment of the Bulgarian state. Now, I want to emphasize here that the decision to elevate culture was made at the highest levels of the party and state bureaucracy. In 1975, the Bulgarian communist leader Todor Zhivkov appointed his daughter, Ludmila Zhivkova, as the chairperson of the Committee for Culture, basically the Ministry of Culture. And Zhivkova's idiosyncratic personality and personal interest in Eastern philosophies and esoteric thought influenced the scope of cultural co cooperation. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. And under her um, guardianship, a new generation of communist elites embraced culture as an opportunity to create international contacts and secure influence in the state bureaucracy vis-a-vis -vis the older generation in charge of the country. So that is very quickly as context and I'm happy to discuss these dynamics in the Q&A. Now what was Bulgaria doing in the developing world? Um, there is a growing and this is sort of like where I'm now turning uh, towards the developing world. There's a growing literature on the global Cold War that has insisted on the importance of the Third World in the conflict between West and East. 
by examining the role of the post-colonial states in the conflict between the first world, that is the United States in Western Europe, and the second world, or the Soviet Union, Union and its allies in Eastern Europe, scholars have refined, uh, uh, redefined the Cold War as a fundamentally multipolar conflict. And this multipolar Cold War perspective is uh, at the center of my analysis here. And I also want to note uh, here briefly that for the purposes of this presentation, I use the terms third world, global south, and developing countries as synonyms, although they have different historical origins. Now, there is an emerging literature on the involvement of Eastern Europe in the third world outside of the influence of the Soviet Union. And this is also where I'm seeing uh, part of my contribution. The Soviet allies played an import important role in the project of international develop development, but often they pursued their own priorities over Soviet bloc solidarity. Many of the Eastern European states were more developed than the Soviet Union, so third world leaders often preferred their expertise over Soviet advice. Further, the socialist states had the appeal of not being superpowers dictating their geopolitical terms, but states that acted as equal partners. So again, we can talk more about here about uh, the motives of the communist elites involved uh, in these decisions, but I think it's important to emphasize that on the global scene, the Eastern European states enjoyed a level of independence from the Soviet influence. So in this presentation, I explore the Bulgarian cultural involvement in India, Mexico, and Nigeria to emphasize the importance of the interactions between junior members of the Soviet bloc and the global south. I adopt a peri-centric perspective, which seeks to emphasize the importance of the global periphery in the Cold War. In the analysis presented here, Sofia, New Delhi, Mexico City, and Lagos were important actors who cooperated fruitfully outside of the shadows of Moscow, Washington, Bonn, or London. Now, India, Mexico, and Nigeria had their own reasons for pursuing contacts with the socialist states in Eastern Europe. However, here, I reverse the question to ask why a small state in the Balkans sought new allies outside of Europe and invested in international cultural activities in the developing world. And I also want to emphasize here that my sources reflect the viewpoint of Bulgaria, and I am not claiming to speak for the people in Mexico uh, or the leaders uh, in India, Mexico, or Nigeria. This is a Bulgarian-centered perspective that is um, based on Bulgarian archives. So how did Bulgarian officials conceive of their interactions with the developing world? The Bulgarians tended to refrain from using the third three worlds model that used the designation second world to refer to the Eastern European socialist states as second to the West. Bulgarian diplomats occasionally used the categories of North and South, but the Bulgarian term of choice was developing countries, and there were objective criteria to classify certain countries as such, including a large agricultural population, industrial underdevelopment, and the desire for modernization. So this is sort of like in the view of the Bulgarian officials. This definition allowed Bulgaria to assert its own credentials as a recently developed socialist state vis-a-vis -vis the developed capitalist states and offer an alternative model of modernization to developing states. Now, I want to emphasize that this understanding of development um, was specifically and peculiarly state socialist. Uh, it, um, so 
uh, in the understanding of Bulgarian officials, development was, uh, they, they shared an integrated understanding of development that merged economic and cultural notions to pursue a total transformation of social relations in which culture played an important role. And this is why I'm looking at cultural relations in the context of development. And this holistic definition of development uh, explains why cultural programs became a part and parcel of Bulgarian cooperation with the third world. In other words, what we're seeing is that throughout the Bulgarian adventures in the third world, economic and cultural uh, cooperation went hand in hand. And so far, most of um, the literature on the global Cold War and the place uh, of uh, the Second World in the Third has looked at, at economic cooperation, at military and political cooperation. But I think it's also important to look at culture because culture was a very important aspect uh, of the relationship between Bulgaria and the developing uh, world. Now, I'm not going to go in details here discussing um, the Bulgarian motivations. Uh, uh, I am happy to address them uh, in the Q&A. Exactly, what exactly were they seeking in the developing world? I mean, ideology played an important role. Economic interest played an important role. There were reputational purposes for Bulgaria's attempts to engage with the third world. But I want to emphasize something that uh, hasn't, uh, again, um, entered our thinking about the role of Bulgaria in the global Cold War, because Bulgaria has tradition, traditionally been seen as the most loyal ally of the Soviet Union. In the late 1970s, Todor Zhivkov, the Bulgarian communist leader, became the most traveled, traveled Eastern European leader, um, even compared to Ceausescu. Uh, sources are consistently portraying him as a person who is just traversing the world seeking new partnerships. Just one example, 1976, he extended state visits to India, Libya, Tunisia, Iran, and Iraq, and accepted visitors from Ethiopia, Tanzania, Somalia, Vietnam, Laos, Egypt, Angola, Mozambique, and Mexico. So as you can see, this is a very ambitious um, um, international agenda. And in this context of rapidly expanding relationships with the developing world, a growing number of Bulgarian officials, supported by the daughter of Todor Zhivkov, Ludmila Zhivkova, of whom I spoke previously, thought that culture could play a unique international role uh, because it could help to assert the prestige of a small state on the world st stage. And this is where I'm going to go next. So India and Mexico were by far the two most important international partners of Bulgaria from the mid 1970s on. And in fact, Bulgarian leaders often combined their trips to these two countries, which does not make sense geographically, but nevertheless, they were pursuing these connections between the countries in a, in a desire to showcase their contacts with these two most important, important partners. Now, Bulgaria had established diplomatic relations with India in 1954. In the 1960s and 1970s, there were regular communications between the two countries along economic lines mostly, but really from the mid-1970s on, culture added a new dimension to those contacts. Mexico, however, was an entirely new phenomenon in Bulgarian diplomacy. Uh, Bulgaria only established relations with Mexico in 1974, opened its embassy there in 1975. And this sudden surge of Mexican-Bulgarian contacts was something of a mystery to foreign diplomats as they worried uh, what exactly the Bulgarians were doing in Mexico. 
Now, there was much to criticize in the internal affairs of the new Bulgarian partners. Bulgarian diplomats often used the term contradictions to describe both India and Mexico. But compromise was the basis of the successful political romance between the three countries. Close contacts with India and Mexico were possible because their foreign policy agendas were not objectionable, according to um, Bulgarian diplomats, but it was clear also from the diplomatic records that they were constantly trying to play down uh, various contradictions that otherwise would have uh, caused doubts whether these were viable uh, partnerships. Um, now, I also want to emphasize here that in the growing context between the three countries, the importance of the strong personal relations that developed between political leaders was key. A close friendship developed between Gandhi, Indira Gandhi and Ludmila Zhivkova, both daughters of leaders that took their countries in radical new directions. Their personal patronage played an important part in the intense cordial relations between the two countries that developed from 1976 on. Similarly, in Mexico, highly placed women played an important role. Um, so the Zhivkov clan uh, had close relations with President Portillo, but Zhivkova became a very close friend to First Lady Carmen Romano, pictured right here. Uh, and um, uh, Carmen uh, Romano um, hosted receptions, museum openings and ceremonies honoring uh, Zhivkova during her visits uh, in uh, Mexico. And in this context, Bulgarian officials started uh, um, organizing a staggering number of cultural events in both uh, countries. In India, in May of 1977, a Bulgarian cultural information center opened in New Delhi in the middle class neighborhood of Golf Link to popularize the, the achievements of building new life in our country. The center published a glossy monthly magazine, News from Bulgaria, pictured right uh, here, to advertise Bulgarian political, economic and cultural accomplishments. The University of New Delhi established a Bulgarian language professorship in 1977, enrolling 17 majors who studied Bulgarian language, history and culture. They regularly performed uh, at the embassy, and you can see here actually a recital of Bulgarian poetry by Indian students enrolled at the University uh, of, uh, of Delhi. And by 1980, Bulgarian diplomats had held 76 exhibitions, organized 242 film projections, and 56 celebratory meetings, and distributed over half a million copies of books and magazines in India. There were altogether 420 visits of cultural character between India uh, and Bulgaria in um, the late uh, nine, uh, in uh, 1980. Uh, 52 Indian students pursued uh, a Bulgarian language degree. And in 1980, uh, spectacularly, there were over 82 Bulgarian Indian friendship societies, which also had over 150,000 dual paying members who attended events such as those uh, shown here, uh, who partook uh, in meetings with Bulgarian diplomats and collected a small subsidy to organize events on occasion of Bulgarian holidays. And then very often the members of those uh, friendship societies were actually the one who would then visit Bulgaria on reciprocal um, uh, cultural uh, visits in Bulgaria as well. Now, Bulgarian cultural efforts in Mexico were not as wide-ranged as in India, given the fact that they practically began from scratch in 1976. 
To impress their hosts, the Bulgarians relied on the prestigious exhibitions that had already successfully toured the world. In 1977, the Thracian treasures from Bulgaria um, came to Mexico City after it concluded its visit to the British Museum and before it went to the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. Uh, another exhibition that had become a worldwide sensation, 1,000 Years Bulgarian Icons, came from Paris in March 78 to commemorate the centennial of Bulgarian independence. Then in 1979, the Contemporary Bulgarian Art Exhibition opened, and this is the poster for that exhibition. Now, as the anniversary year 1981 approached, more demands were put on Bulgarian embassies worldwide to organize events commemorating the 1500th anniversary. And I am actually going to go quickly here just to emphasize how ultimately in this context of um, uh, you know, trying to stage these celebrations, you have the parallel celebration of 1981 in India and uh, Mexico. In February of 1981, Zhivkova uh, traveled to India to open the world-renowned exhibition, Tracian Treasures uh, from Bulgaria, at the National Gallery of Modern Art in New Delhi. Indira Gandhi paid the visit, there were numerous events associated with the event, and then, uh, in fact, Zhivkova did a tour of India, she visited um, uh, various places um, throughout India, Bangalore, Hyderabad, uh, Madras, Adruvel. Uh, uh, so she also traveled uh, throughout the country. Then she went back to Bulgaria for 12 hours to recover uh, and visit with her children and flew to Mexico to open another um, exhibit, the Medieval Bulgarian Civilization, which was opened by President Portillo himself, who was also given the highest Bulgarian uh, prize for international uh, leaders. Uh, and uh, then um, there were numerous events also throughout Mexico. Now, uh, following these celebrations in July of 1981, Ludmila Zivkova died in the midst of the Jubilee celebrations that had been her brainchild. And rumors have it that the two long trips to India and Mexico, which included meetings with gurus and clairvoyants, in addition to high officials, precipitated her death. And soon, both Indira Gandhi and Carmen Romano honored Zhivkova in their own countries. For example, the Ludmila Zhivkova Professorship in Bulgarian Studies was established at the University of Delhi to honor the work of Zhivkova. So you can see again the extent of this cultural extravaganza. Now, I will um, switch now to Nigeria to um, also outline um, the happenings there. I will try to go more quickly here so we can have actually some time for um, a broader discussion of the meaning of all this. Bulgaria established relations with Nigeria in 1964, four years after its independence in 1960. But the relations between the two countries were not particularly robust until the mid-1970s. Between 1967 and 1970, Nigeria went through a civil war. And after the war ended in 1970, the military regime of General Gowon commenced new economic policies which sought to develop Nigeria's vast petroleum reserves and industrialize the country. Oil revenue allowed a huge state investment in vast infrastructure projects, including the move of the capital from Lagos to Abuja. And this development opened the door to specialists from the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, including Bulgaria, as well as the GDR, Poland, Hungary, and Yugoslavia. So the Bulgarians in Nigeria were part of a broader network of specialists coming from throughout the Eastern Bloc. Now, from the Bulgarian perspective, the prime motivation for expanding contact with Nigeria were economic possibilities, 
especially in the spheres of machine building, construction, and agriculture. The Bulgarians were interested in oil, but they wanted to barter and not pay hard currency for the resource. And the Bulgarian state construction firm Techno Export Stroy wished to secure contracts in the new capital, Abuja. Several hundred Bulgarian specialists, mainly physicians, engineers, architects, and agronomists, worked in Nigeria. And at the same time, there were about 320 Nigerian students who studied in Bulgaria in the 1970s. The Bulgarians were also involved in training uh, trade union leaders, Nigerian trade union leaders who often went to Bulgaria for training seminars. And actually, Bulgaria uh, helped Nigeria celebrate the 1st of May as the International Workers' Day for the first time in 1981, which is the anniversary year. And that was a huge a part of the endeavors of Bulgarian diplomats in Nigeria. Uh, Bulgarian rep representatives uh, designed elaborate plans how to secure a new niche in the modernization plans of Nigerian elites. And this is where culture became a method, became a strategy for actually uh, pursuing contacts and pursuing contracts in Nigeria. Now, Bulgarian efforts to marry economic and cultural endeavors in Nigeria dated to 1972 when Bulgarian architects and engineers took charge of the construction of the new National Theatre in Lagos, built on the model of the Varna Palace of Culture and Sports. And actually, if you look at the two buildings side by side, you will see that they follow exactly the same um, uh, template, uh, it's actually the same imprint. But the building in Lagos exceeded the size of the Varna prototype six times. Completed in 1976, the theater consisted of an auditorium for 5,000 people, a conference hall uh, for 160, two exhibition halls, two cinemas with 800 seats each, dressing rooms for 600 actors, 80 offices. Um, and on occasion of the opening of the theater, Bulgaria participated in the Second World Black and African Festival of Arts and Culture. The theater was actually built in order to help with the celebration um, of that festival. Uh, Nigeria actually hosted this festival in the winter of 1977. And it's clear here that we have this connection again between economic and cultural contacts because the Bulgarians were systematically pursuing both. And this Bulgarian involvement in the building of the National Theatre at the heart of the Niger Nigerian capital was a major accomplishment for the small state that wished to position itself as a development model for African states. Um, but this involvement also enabled Bulgarian diplomats to develop further their cultural contacts in Nigeria. Now, this attempt to create a Bulgarian cultural presence in Nigeria probably seems as an overkill. But they followed a certain logic that I wish to explore. So what did the Bulgarian cultural programs in Nigeria involve? Bulgarian diplomats organized a number of events tailored to the special cultural conditions of Nigeria. They worked to establish contacts with the media. They uh, wished to uh, show films, a trusted method of cultural diplomacy. They wanted to distribute more uh, propaganda material but actually um, there was lack of English language printed materials that remained a chronic uh, problem. And given, given the chronic uh, lack of resources, but also the fact that in the state bureaucracy, Nigeria was not prioritized in the same way India and Mexico were. And I actually want to just um, mention here quickly that the Bulgarian amb ambassador in 
Lagos had requested the Bulgarian officials dispatch to Lagos the Thracian treasures from Bulgarian exhibition that had also made it to India and Mexico, but his suggestion was declined because Bulgarian officials did not consider it appropriate to send this prestigious representative exhibition to Nigeria. So given this shortage of cultural resources, uh, the bulk of the Bulgarian cultural activities involved the organization of traveling photo exhibitions, consisting of photo panels prepared by the Bulgarian International Press Agency, Sofia Press. And usually these exhibitions took place during trips of economic nature, trips during which Bulgarian diplomats were also trying to uh, establish economic uh, relations and pursue various contracts, usually um, with Bulgarian specialists or the construction of various uh, sites throughout the country. Now, the exhibitions combined different messages depending on the audience and availability of materials during the specific time, but consistently portrayed a picture of triumphant economic and cultural development in Bulgaria over the centuries and especially during the years of real socialism. So um, what is interesting here is that so many of these exhibitions actually dwelt on history and on the importance of the past for the Bulgarian uh, model of development. Uh, and uh, ultimately what we're seeing is that all of these displays conveyed the pride in the rich historical heritage and recent economic transformations in the country, invoking a preferred model of development that merged cultural and economic factors to emphasize the active involvement of the Bulgarian state in the overall welfare, in the holistic welfare of its citizens. 1981 also emerged as a key date for Bulgarian uh, officials. Uh, in March of 1981, Days of Bulgaria in Nigeria were held in Lagos, actually at the cultural center of the Soviet embassy uh, in Lagos. And then uh, at the reception, diplomats distributed materials for a highly anticipated competition, Do You Know Bulgaria? Here is the copy of it asking um, a number of questions and offering a number of prizes, including, um, you know, vacations uh, on the Black Sea uh, and various other rewards that were particularly attractive to young people in Nigeria. In 1981, Bulgarian diplomats continued to energetically traverse the large country, staging various events explicitly dedicated to the um, 1300th anniversary. Typically, those events included a photo exhibit accompanied with a, a brief speech, the screening, you can see some of these exhibits right here, right? The screening uh, of a film and the distribution of printed materials or sometimes small folk objects were also distributed to the audiences and actually pins, 1300 years Bulgaria pins were also distributed to those who were present in the, uh, in the audience. And during these events, diplomats often dressed in folk costumes. And I believe I have this slide here. You can see here how the ambassador is actually wearing a Bulgarian folk costume to match the elaborate attire of his host rather than the obligatory diplomatic uh, you know, suit. So often um, what you're seeing is that, uh, so the diplomats conveyed the specific Bulgarian notions of how the country could serve as a model of development for Nigeria. So here is one excerpt from a speech, and this is actually a transcript of a speech uh, that was given by Ambassador Atanasov, uh, which again shows very clearly this use of the cultural and historical language. Bulgaria is an ancient country, but at the same time also a young, recently developed country. We are old because this year we mark 
13 centuries of the foundation of the Bulgarian state, but we are young because the real growth of our country began 37 years ago. Uh, so here again, you see that the reality of rich cultural heritage and the possibility of fast economic development clearly converged under the logic of the organizers. So having quickly presented, um, you know, um, some of these events that took place uh, and that were organized by, by Bulgarian representatives in the three countries, I, I wanted to, to, to consider a little bit the, the importance uh, of this Bulgarian cultural involvement in the developing world. So as we saw certain countries in the developing world emerged as key destinations for Bulgarian elites in the 1970s. Now I want to emphasize here that small Bulgaria chose very deliberately to um, develop relations with three large states. They're all huge states compared to small Bulgaria, right? The, the most populous African country, Nigeria, India, uh, the most populous uh, democracy, and then Mexico, one of the largest states uh, in uh, Latin uh, America. And there is not one solid clear-cut criterion in determining the nature of these new relationships. In some cases, such as Nigeria, economic motivations drove the urge for contact. And there's absolutely no doubt that the primary motivation for going to Nigeria was economic uh, reasons, as particularly desire to secure contracts uh, in the construction uh, industry in order to procure hard currency for the regime. In others, such as Mexico, culture was the only thing that actually provided some substance in the, the new encounter. And Bulgarian officials actually spoke about culture as a new way to build relationships between uh, states. In the third case of India, economic and cultural factors were closely uh, intertwined, intertwined, but also it's important to emphasize the close uh, personal relationship between Indira Gandhi and Ludmila Zhivkova, who cultivated sustained contacts between their countries. Uh, yet, in all these contacts, the key role played by culture is striking, and this is what I want to elaborate on. Now, traveling to faraway countries presented Bulgarian officials with unexpected opportunities to craft a distinct cultural message in front of global audiences without much prior knowledge about the country. And I want to emphasize that for that reason, the Bulgarian cultural programs in the um, third world, in the developing world, acquired a specific flavor. They were very different from the events that were organized in the Balkans and in Western Europe to other areas that I discuss in, uh, in my uh, book, where the Bulgarian cultural message was much more closely scrutinized and there the Bulgarians were not able to take the liberties that they took in crafting their rather extravagant and exaggerated cultural message in these three other faraway destinations. Now, this situation allowed Bulgarian cultural forays in the developing world to acquire a distinct flavor, a flavor because in India and Mexico in particular, Bulgarian officials promoted often extravagant civilizational claims. There were two aspects of this civilizational message. On the one hand, Bulgarian officials operated under the assumption of their own uncontested Europeanness. So when they went to these countries, they just assume that they're representatives of European civilization, but a different sort of European civilization outside of the canons of Western civilization. Uh, but uh, on, the, uh, on the other hand, they uh, asserted the image of Bulgaria 
as an equal peer of other great world civilizations such uh, as those of ancient Mexico or India. This official sought to emphasize the unique role of small Bulgaria at the crossroads of world civilizations. And this message seemed to resonate among the Bulgarian hosts because it also served the specific political agendas of Indian and Mexican elites uh, uh, and Indian elites uh, at, uh, at the time. In the archival records, it's actually fascinating to see that the most uh, frequently mentioned, mentioned commonalities between the three countries involved references to culture and history. The ancient origins of the three states and their current desire to preserve and enhance the historical heritage of Aztec warriors, Thracian kings, Mughal princes, and Hindu sages was a recurring theme. So what I really want to emphasize here is how prominently actually culture was uh, featured in the communication. Um, and um, the, uh, what I have here is actually, this is a radio program uh, talking about Bulgaria, where you are seeing here very clearly um, this emphasis how new vistas of understanding are, have been opened through culture between two of the most ancient civilizations. So this merging of civilizations, this merging of world civilizations was a key message here. Now, this desire to establish historical connections and use the past to justify current political choices explains the importance of culture in the context between the three states. In the context of anxieties about domestic and global stability, historical and cultural arguments provided reassurance that as a great civilization of the past, the three countries would persevere in the face of adversity and succeed in future goals. Strikingly, in Nigeria as well, Bulgarian repre representatives were even more willing to assert their Europeanness and their image of a grand civilization and trying to cultivate new economic and political connections uh, with uh, Nigerian elites. They were using appeals to culture and history to make uh, their development projects attractive, attractive to, their, uh, uh, to their Nigerian hosts. So the civilizational, civilizational rhetoric combined with the language of development infused the cultural programs that Bulgarian elites pursued throughout the developing uh, world, uh, which I, I think is uh, actually um, pretty unique also for other state socialist countries who are pursuing similar cultural agendas, but we are only now starting to learn about the unique flavor of those cultural programs uh, in the developing world. Now, to conclude, I want to um, make some larger claims about the bigger picture related to this uh, story, um, to those um, Bulgarian engagements with the developing world. Uh, in all of these cases, the focus on cultural convergences and civilizational commonalities made possible the articulation of a new global imaginaries, which linked a small country on the margins of Europe with some of the most prominent world civilizations. Ultimately, these linkages charted alternative cultural geographies that challenged dominant narratives centered on Western civilization while inscribing the importance of Bulgarian ancestors, the Thracians and the Slavs into a global rather than just European civilizational context. These endeavors were no doubt rooted in nationalistic aspirations, and I'm happy to talk more about that. Yet this national agenda had an impact uh, internationally because it followed universal models and pursued novel global partnerships. In line with recent studies that emphasize 
the importance of socialist globalization as an alternative to Western capitalist globalization. And really, in the last five years, we have increasingly gained new understanding of the active role of Eastern European states in the developing world. Uh, up until the end of the Cold War in 1989, which challenged Western ideas of development and cooperation between the global uh, uh, with the Global South and articulated uh, alternative ideas of development that brought East and South uh, together. So it is perhaps striking that small Bulgaria felt that it could participate in these conversations on an equal, if not superior, footing in relation to much larger states because of the imagined shared values and historical similarities as grand world civilizations, which bound them together in a past, present, future continuum. Here, Bulgarian efforts in the Global South highlight, highlight the ability of a small state to influence the cultural imagination of the 1970s by pursuing unlikely channels of communication and contact uh, beyond the East-West competition for the global order. Such alternatives, global connections, actively shaped the world from the margins, creating mental geographies outside of the East-West and North-South considerations to craft a new global vision along an East-South axis instead. Thank you very much. I am going to stop here. And I do have these quotations here, but we don't need to go into those right now. I will stop sharing. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm sure uh, all the other audience members are joining me in applauding. Uh, was a very fascinating and clear and informative presentation. So without further ado, I'm going to turn to the audience and invite questions. So we have uh, one hand up already. Um, so please remember uh, to unmute yourself and uh, turn on your video when I call on you and also uh, be perhaps useful for each person to give a brief introduction. So Michael Goodman. Yeah, hi, uh, this is Mike Goodman. I'm an alumnus of uh, UW uh, Madison. A question that I have is I couldn't help but think of the remarkable parallels here between uh, Bulgaria's uh, program of cultural uh, activities uh, abroad and what was done by Cuba during the same period. I mean, Cuba, the Cuban revolution uh, triumphed a few years after this date of 1956 that you indicate was a, a crucial one. Uh, Cuba had an extensive pattern of international inv involvement. I suspect that Castro traveled even more than did Zhivkov. And the other interesting uh, triumph of Cuban uh, international adventurism was the fact that uh, Castro was named head of the non-aligned movement for many years, even though Cuba could hardly be considered to be a non-aligned country. So just wondering if you could uh, comment uh, as to uh, the nature of these uh, similarities. And then of course, the other interesting one you mentioned the role of the importance of uh, improving the image of a small country like Bulgaria abroad. And that's certainly something that Cuba succeeded in doing, you know, essentially a country that had been an obscure Caribbean backwater to a country of significant international importance. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Uh so, so actually, it's interesting that the Bulgarians also went to Cuba and uh, they uh, tried to stage similar cultural events there uh, as well. 
however, um, that was not the priority for them in this particular context, because the reason to engage in these cultural uh, events was really to chart new relationships in a global context. So in some ways, the relationship with the socialist bloc was not uh, as much of a priority as um, trying to expand contacts with the West and trying to expand contacts with the rest of, develop, of, of the developing world or select countries in the developing world. So I'm afraid I actually haven't looked as much at the Cuban situation, but what is interesting, and you're absolutely right, so the Bulgarians were definitely in comp competition with other socialist countries throughout the world. Um, everywhere that they went, they were in competition with uh, East Germans, with Poles, with Yugoslavs, uh, with Romanians. Um, and that competition is something that I think we still don't know a lot about. Generally, it is assumed that the countries are following the mandates of the Warsaw Pact, but it's very clear that they have autonomy in the third world and they are not always following Soviet mandates. That's very clear. The case um, with Bulgaria, because often actually Brezhnev grumbled and he really actually disliked many of these cultural events, which he saw uh, as expressions of Bulgarian nationalism that undermined Soviet bloc solidarity and also portrayed an image of superiority of Bulgaria vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. So in other words, uh, I cannot speak specifically to the Cuban, to the Cuban example, uh, I, uh, but I can confirm that this sort of international cultural engagements did cause tensions within the socialist bloc as a whole and a lot of competition between the brotherly countries of the Warsaw Pact in their attempt to uh, actually uh, develop new partnerships in the developing world. Okay, thank you, uh, Mike, for a great question and for the uh, excellent answer. Uh, next on the queue is Matthew Green. Hi there. Um, my name is Matthew Green. I'm a PhD candidate here at UW-Madison. Um, I'm in the Department of German, Nordic, and Slavic Plus, but do some stuff with Krika as well. Um, and in my own research, I think a lot about the Czech Republic and Czechoslovakia and their relations to Vietnam specifically, and the workers' contracts between Vietnam and Czechoslovakia. And so it was really refreshing to hear your talk about, about cultural impacts and relationships because so much of what I see is just economics and the Czechs kind of flaunt um, that Vietnam now has the best beer in Asia because of them. Um, but mostly the, the, the travels that I'm seeing are more from Vietnam to Czechoslovakia than in the other direction. Um, and so you kind of, so that's just a long buildup to my question because you kind of started to answer it. Um, I was thinking about how if there was actually like some kind of centralized meeting or event or some kind of collaboration between the Soviet states and if there if like there were you know ideas like I get this country you get this country and kind of something like that to promote a Soviet idea because this is really interesting to see how you're presenting this Bulgarian history but it's also within the context of Soviet history um, but you just you kind of started to answer that with the idea of competition so I don't know, I, I, you know, it's not fully a question since you started to answer it, but I just wanted to know if you could say more about that, because that's really exciting for me. 
No, thank you very much. Because, well, what's so interesting is that this competition, which is there, is very clearly part uh, of the development, also goes hand in hand with, um, well, Rachel Applebaum is here with socialist internationalism. <laughs> you know, socialist internationalism was uh, um, the way things functioned, um, at least officially. So routinely, um, until the end of the Cold War, representatives of the socialist states met um, at usually, uh, you know, at the Soviet embassy, but also they rotated and they discussed how to coordinate the economic, but also cultural agendas. And they learned from one another what works and what doesn't work. So the Bulgarians were also seeking um, feedback and advice from their uh, colleagues from other socialist states at the same time as they were competing with them. So there is this lip service, paying actually lip service to socialist internationalism at the same time that you're very clearly seeing that they're stabbing each other in the back because they're also pursuing contracts, who is going to be able actually to send specialists in this particular uh, you know, university, who is able to secure a contract to build a hotel in Abuja. Uh, and um, now, um, again, we still don't know enough about that. I think there's a lot to be learned by that. And I think it's also interesting to learn more about actually the Soviet perspective on that. Because I think that if we look at Soviet records, we might recognize that, uh, in fact, uh, really, uh, there was much more autonomy that we understand uh, that there may have been. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, great. Uh, next up, we have uh, Gabby Ivanova. Hi, um, I'm Gabby. I am a sophomore um, at Williams College and was told that this lecture was going to be amazing, and it was. So I'm so happy that I was able to come. Thank you so much. I am from Bulgaria, and so I, I felt like I could relate to so many of the things that you were saying. Um, and I had like one just like kind of overarching question, which is about how the public or like the average person in Bulgaria would have received this kind of cultural programs. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I don't want to say anything bad about Bulgarians, but like my grandparents' generation is systematically xenophobic and racist. So I was wondering whether that sort of mentality might have made people be skeptical about reaching out to maybe India or Nigeria, or whether that was not part of the um, political decisions at all? Mm -hmm. No, no, that's a great question. It's a loaded question. It's a complicated question. So um, in my book, I don't necessarily look at the reception of the events because I'm mainly looking at what we might call official culture, sort of like, you know, official cultural policy, the decisions made at the highest level. Um, that was just mainly dictated by the sources that I, I use, which are predominantly, you know, from institutional archives. But there's no doubt that what is happening here is an expression of cultural nationalism that is becoming more and more powerful uh, as, you know, time goes on. Um, that cultural nationalism is, exp is expressed in these events because many of these events are motivated by the desire to showcase the place of Bulgaria as this grand civilization. And you can see here how pompous and how extravagant this message is, right? I mean, this is not a humble message. This is meant to be, uh, in fact, uh, exactly that, right? I mean, extravagant. Um, 
And what we are seeing is that at the same time this is happening internally in Bulgaria, there is a tightening of policies vis-a-vis -vis ethnic minorities. So these things go hand in hand. And actually it is only later on in the 1980s, in the mid-1980s, that this same cultural nationalism that is nurtured so successfully by the Bulgarian communist elites and it has penetrated the way of thinking of ordinary Bulgarians. Because there's no doubt that actually these are appealing events to most Bulgarians. They show Bulgaria, this great world player, as an ancient civilization, as one of the most prominent European and world civilizations. That's an appealing message for domestic production. Right? Uh, uh, for domestic consumption. And it's a message that communist elites are using to also boost their own legitimacy domestically. But ultimately, this cultural uh, nationalism in the long run has very important effects because from the mid-1980s on, this same cultural nationalism translates into completely intolerant policies versus ethnic minorities, particularly the Muslim minorities, and directly is linked with policies vis-a-vis -vis, you know, the Turks in, in the late 1980s and the ethnic cleansing of the Turks. So there's no, no doubt that this is at its core a nationalist project. So I'm the last one to condone the agendas of Bulgarian elites during this time period. Uh, but, uh, and again, um, there is universal recognition in the, in the sources that one of the reasons that these events are being um, organized is to um, enhance the legitimacy of the regime. Uh, and they are using you know, cultural nationalism for this goal. Now, whether that was also attractive to Bulgarians, I think that there is little doubt that it was, uh, because it did create a diversion. It did create the, uh, the impression that the state cared and the state invested in culture, and actually the state did invest in culture. Uh, but also I want to emphasize one more thing here and I will wrap up that as much as this was about a universal cultural message, it was also connected to ideological aspirations because these elites were also pursuing ideological goals in order to preserve their own influence. They're not necessarily trying to reform that. I mean, they're trying to reform, but with the goal of, of preserving their own influence. So I hope that answered to some degree uh, the, the question. I don't want to go necessarily, I mean, if you look at, at what's happening actually in Africa in particular, there's no doubt that actually the attitudes are very condescending. Um, the diplomats in, the Bulgarian diplomats are talking uh, very often about, well, the Nigerians being on a different level of development. They're talking about the Nigerians doing everything very slowly and not the European way. So, I mean, you definitely have this, you know, um, even though they're talking about anti-imperialist agendas and anti-colonial agendas, very clearly you see a very condescending attitude towards the Nigerians as well. There's a lot more I can say, but I think I should just wrap up here. <laughs> okay, great. Yes. Uh, yeah, thank you, Gabby, very much. It's great to see, uh, to have you uh, participate in this event and that does show you there are some advantages to this virtual format. That's right. Presumably here at Williams College it would not be with us uh, if we were doing this in person. Um, okay, uh, so next up we have uh, Rachel Applebaum and then I'm going to uh, recognize uh, after Rachel uh, both uh, myself and Catherine. Uh, we can't raise our hands because we're designated as co-hosts. So just that's just to warn people that there is there are more questions coming down the road. Uh, we have about uh, 12 minutes left. So uh, Rachel. Please. Yes. Um, hi, I'm Rachel Applebaum from Tufts University. Uh, thank you so much for your talk, Theodora, and I'm really excited to read the book. Um, so my question is about kind of 
follows off a little bit off the last question, but about the motivations of some of the people who are involved in this project on the Bulgarian side. Um, and I, I mean, I've heard a little bit about Ludmila Zhishkova from other sources, and she sounds like a very um, fascinating person with a, a very unusual life. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about more her kind of personal motivations. You talked about her, you know, going to see gurus in, in India, etc. Um, and whether she had motivations that kind of went beyond the cultural project uh, of Bulgaria, personal motivations. Um, and then whether it was possible, whether you knew anything about the motivations of more kind of mid-level um, cultural bureaucrats, you know, embassy officials or whatnot who might be involved in this project. Um, and whether they are, you know, excited to go to places like Mexico um, or Nigeria, or whether they see it as kind of like, oh, we wish we were sent to Paris. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, this is <laughs> where we're sort of starting out at, like whether for them, mm -hmm. this engagement with the global south was mm -hmm. um, as prestigious as the Bulgarian state mm -hmm. is kind of trying to make it out to mm -hmm. be. Mm -hmm. No, these are great questions. Uh, on Zhivkova, I mean, there's a lot to say, and there's a lot actually fascination with her personality and um, or, or with with her who she is. Um, so she died right in July of 1981, and there was a lot of speculation whether she was actually killed by the KGB among ordinary Bulgarians because she was seen to be putting together this agenda that went against the Soviet desires. Brezhnev disliked her, arguably. Um, and he saw actually her um, actions as an expression of nepotism and criticized uh, Zhivko for allowing her to engage uh, in these actions because it embarrassed the socialist world uh, and so forth. So there was, they, there's definitely some tension there that we, again, I mean, one would have to look at the Russian and the Soviet archives to be able to see what's happening there. And I haven't done that. Uh, she herself... Um, well, she, she nurtured this idiosyncratic interest in theosophy, in yoga, in meditation. She became an avid vegetarian. She would not touch any food that was not prepared specially for her by her own chef. And she would, you know, bring her own, um, uh, own food on international uh, trips with, with her. Uh, she... Um, was involved in an, in an accident, uh, so she most likely had a brain injury, and that might have also, you know, influenced the way she developed uh, uh, after that uh, injury. At that point, she became very close with a clairvoyant in Bulgaria, Baba Vanga, and she would regularly go and actually talk to this woman, uh, and they had a very close relationship. There's actually a dissertation, a cult communism, written by a... Um, a PhD, I mean, she already defended uh, at the uh, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, Veneta Ivanova, who is looking uh, specifically at this occult aspect of the communist regime. And that actually might be something uh, one could look at in more detail if that's uh, of interest. So, I mean, she definitely um, uh, had her idiosyncrasies, but she also very meticulously systematically cultivated this circle, which was known as the circle of Ludmila. And many of them were technocrats, intellectuals, professors, artists, uh, and others who were not always necessarily um, fully um, part of the, I mean, actually I probably should rephrase that. They eventually became part 
of the ruling structure of the country, but they did, did not necessarily begin from the communist bureaucracy, right? So they built themselves up. So, uh, so she actually cultivated this network of cultural intelligentsia uh, who um, promoted her, her ideas and she promoted them as well. And they were in competition with the second generation that was in charge of the country. So there was that tension there, you know, the people of Ludmila versus the old guard that uh, were functioned within the country. And then I would say that, um, so it's interesting how, how I, it's difficult for me to say so the West versus the, sec, the, the, the developing world. Definitely the West was a priority. It was a massive priority. The best projects went there. The best projects were sent there. The best people were there, were sent there. Um, in the third world, there was, I think, a little bit more fluidity because I don't think it was seen as desired as the West. So everyone wanted to go to the West, but the West was most, most more meticulously also organized, more carefully organized, because there it was recognized that we have to emphasize quality rather than quantity. Whereas in the developing world, you can just dump as much as you need to. Right? So the, qu the quantity went to the developing world, whereas the quality went to the West. So maybe that's one way to distinguish between the two. And I would definitely say, however, that many of the most prominent cultural functionaries also went to the developing world because Ludmila Zivkova sent them there specifically on her missions. So I think it's difficult to generalize. There is a lot going on. I'm happy to talk to you separately more about that if you want. Uh, but I mean, it is fascinating, you know, all of these different individuals, some of them are definitely a technocrat middle level rather than just like elites. And I Thank do you. want to be mindful that we have two other people. So I'm going to just wrap up here. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Now I'll recognize Catherine, please. Hi. Um, thank you, um, Theodora. This is a really wonderful talk. Um, so um, my question is really about the kind of knowledge or pseudo knowledge of this region. And it goes back to the, the previous, one of the previous questions um, about race and civilizational hierarchies. And, and I thought it was really fascinating how you framed this, that, you know, Bulgaria in some senses can claim that it's been through this process recently. So it has a sort of advantage in some ways over mm -hmm. the, the countries mm -hmm. of Western Europe. But there's also this sense that they are European, that they see themselves as uh, culturally, civilizationally, perhaps racially superior to some of the people that they're encountering. Um, and so I, I, I thought that was really interesting. And I think that we can trace this back to the interwar period as well, and that the kind of knowledge mm -hmm. that we yeah. generated. My question is actually about um, the kind of feedback mechanism that happens once they go to these places and, um, and meet with people. Um, are there things that they find that sort of work better than others in terms of their, their own motivations and their own agenda? And does it change over time in terms of the kind of policies and the kind of cultural um, events that they are attempting to um, carry out here? In other words, what kind of things change over the period that you're looking at? What kind of things stick in these regions? What kind of things don't yeah. work? And are they very responsive to that kind of feedback that they're getting from the people on the ground? Thanks. Um, yes and no. So they, they are interested in feedback because they want people to come to the events so that they recognize that if they want to attract people to the events, they have to recognize their audiences. But on the other hand, often they have plans to fulfill because for these bureaucrats, for these diplomats, right? I mean, they are working for these agencies in Bulgaria and they, they literally have plans to fulfill because they have uh, written, you know, all of these uh, very meticulous lists of events that have to be uh, organized in the logic of the bureaucracy. Uh, the events, to tell you the truth, are pretty, um, 
they follow a similar template. Uh, they are very uh, much top-down organized, uh, to, you know, in a top-down fashion. They, they have this obligatory uh, boilerplate ideological language that has to be part of the language. They often go in a, in a more universal humanistic direction. Um, that, that happens. Um, and uh, sometimes, I mean, you see also Bulgarian officials engaging with audiences more systematically, but, but in their book, these are very scripted and very carefully orchestrated events because the Bulgarians are also very careful in the way they, I mean, so they, all of these officials are also in competition with one another. As you know, Rachel was indicating there's a desirability where you want to go. So you have to build your career up. So if, in order to go to Paris, you perhaps first have to go to you know, some other place and to be able to be sent to Paris, you actually have to fulfill the plan in the way it's conceived uh, and planned rather than improvised. So they're very hierarchical. Uh, and um, the one thing I would say, however, however, is that even though ideology is part of the language, they are also trying not to overdo it. They're trying to be careful because they are also clear that they don't want their message to be seen simply as communist propaganda. And this is the reason why they're also incorporating this more universal humanistic language. So, um, it's a curious mix. It really is almost like a boilerplate that has to go first, and they're trying to then take it in a universal direction, but very staged events. Uh, with the exception, perhaps, of some of these prestigious exhibitions, because when you have Thracian treasures in the Metropolitan, I mean, at that point, once you have it there, you cannot necessarily stage it. What people see is different, and then you have this press conferences, the Bulgarian uh, you know, scientists are giving, you have these radio shows, you have actually conversations with audiences. So those work a little bit differently. Again, this is probably an unsatisfactory quick answer, but again, I wanna make sure that Ted has his chance. Thanks, thanks, yes, I, I appreciate the chance. So I will um, ask a, a question that has two parts. So I'm very interested in the, the selection of these particular countries and uh -huh. you know, situating that in terms of your broader uh, sort of model of that this is a, the sort yeah. of the third, you know, the second world engaging the third world uh, or a small second world country. So because it strikes me, this is a small second world country that's engaging three very big uh, third world or, or, or developing countries, uh, moreover three which are quite uh, high in the rankings in terms of the, the third world countries in terms of their economic power and other criteria. Uh -huh. And so uh, maybe you could comment a little bit more on that aspect of it. And, and, and relatedly, I'm interested in the non-aligned movement as a phenomenon during this period. And, and did that factor in at all? I mean, I know, you know, maybe not so much Mexico, although I think it was a member at some point, uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, but certainly India uh, and Nigeria were, were full members of the non-aligned movement. Uh, well, so my selection of the countries, I wanted to have different countries from different continents. I mean, simply I wanted to sort of like spread it out geographically. Um, so, and then I, and actually another country that I considered was uh, Japan, because Japan was also a very important destination of Bulgarian cultural diplomacy, but I just decided it's going to be too much to handle all of these different case studies. I have to admit that um, when I was looking for a country that I want to choose in Africa, I chose Nigeria also because my family was in Nigeria in, in the late 1970s. Uh, so they were part of the specialist exchange that I'm also discussing as part of the book. So that was like a personal choice for me. 
But then as I was looking at the other countries, just like Mexico and India really truly were the countries that stand out. Uh, and that's also connected with economic priorities um, uh, in India in particular, because at the same time, for example, there is uh, um, there are other scholars who are looking at, for example, the development of Bulgarian computing in India, which is happening you know, at the same time period. So the economic message is very much there. In terms of non, the non-aligned movement, again, I'm going to say very uh, quickly that that was something that the Bulgarians were interested in, and actually they were trying to portray themselves as what they would say the natural and the best ally of the non-aligned movement. Mm. Uh, so that was very much a link on their agenda, and one of the reasons that they saw that you know one way to resolve the contradictions that emerged in this countries was to recognize that the foreign policy agenda of these countries was not objectionable. This is a very low bar, but you know, when you're looking for allies, mm -hmm. I mean, you have to, to find something that will work. And, you know, being part of the non-aligned movement was definitely something that worked to the advantage of the Bulgarians ideologically even, because they were seeing as, you know, giving support to the non-aligned movement as well during this time period. Okay, well, fantastic. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, I'm sure that uh, now we're all uh, convinced you've lived up to the high standard that uh, Catherine <laughs> set for you. And I'm sure I, I share everyone's, or everyone shares my sense that this is going to be a fantastic book. And uh, we really appreciate uh, the chance to hear about your exciting new project. Uh, and so thanks again. And um, thank you to the audience uh, as well for participating and for asking such great questions. So that's it. We'll thank you very much. Now. I very much appreciate it.